Let's open our Bibles again to John chapter 16. John 16. We covered verses 12 through 15 in our first assembly today. We should have learned, though there was not that much emphasis put on it, that the Bible is a book of progressive revelation. Means that the farther you read to the right, the better. After you've read it all. Because you need to understand what's in the first part of it. But what's written in the second part is better. Paul said the word better. Paul described the Old Testament as being beggarly, carnal, elementary, rudimentary, worldly, and passing away. And what's in the New Testament is better and good, profitable, glorious. He compared the glories in 2 Corinthians 3 of the Old Testament and New Testament and said there's no comparison. It's like, like, it's like light to darkness. Progressive revelations means the apostles' epistles are the best books for us to devour. Apostles' epistles, written to Gentiles, written for us right now in this era, and we don't need to wonder about the obscure implications made like when we read Old Testament prophecies. In your reading, in your memorization, make sure to embrace and exalt the apostles' epistles. I was asked a good question at break time between our services about Jesus and the red writing in your Bible. Is the red writing in your Bible in red because it's more important than the black writing? Did God make it red writing? Did the Holy Spirit inspire red writing? Is the red writing more important than the black writing? No, it is not. And we had a heresy in this church decades ago by a young man that thought the red writing was preeminent over the black writing. Jesus or Paul? Which is more important? Paul's more important. Paul's our apostle. Even if we were Jews, Paul's more important than Jesus when it comes to revealed revelation in the scripture pages. The document on our website is entitled Jesus or Paul. It has 19 matters of doctrine that Paul taught that Jesus didn't. Jesus was born a Jew, under the Jews, practiced circumcision, kept the Sabbath day. Paul threw circumcision out the window, threw the Sabbath out the window, kept the first day of the week, turned the gospel to the Gentiles, taught things Jesus had never taught before. By revelation from Jesus... To the Spirit, to Paul. We're Christians because Paul pointed everything back to Jesus Christ. Paul said, be followers of Christ as I am a follower of Christ. So we follow Jesus Christ as Christians the way Paul told us to in those New Testament epistles written to Gentile churches. Let's not grieve the Holy Spirit or we're going to miss some of the indirect blessing of understanding truth based on John 16, 12 through 15. If you're dull comprehending, if you're dull appreciating, or if you're dull in passion, it all results from hindering the Holy Spirit in your life. Unhindered Holy Spirit presence and power in your life, you will comprehend, appreciate, and love the things of the Bible. 
especially the more spiritual things. Jesus or Paul is something we want to remember. I made a schematic that took the sections of the Bible's books, made columns out of them, and showed the, how they vary over time and showed progressive revelation, but I didn't like it. So you're not going to see it. Because if I don't like it, you're not going to see it. I just wasn't content that it was meaningful enough. I wanted it to be meaningful enough, but maybe I'll have some blessing this next week in order to make it more meaningful for you. You know, you've got the first five books of the Bible called the law. Then you've got about 21 books of the Bible called history. Then you've got five books of the Bible called poetry. Then you've got about 20-some books of the Bible called prophets. And we'll not break up the major and minor prophets. We don't care what size they are. It's just the section of the Bible called prophets. Then you've got the gospels. Then you've got Acts of the Apostles, which is a history book. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are pretty much history books themselves. Jesus went here. Jesus went there. Jesus said this. Jesus did that. Then we've got the epistles, and we've got one final prophecy in the book of the Revelation. And if you line those up in seven columns, I reduced it to seven because I didn't like 10 or 12 or 15 if we wanted to get too fine in our divisions. And then you look across, what was the means of salvation? Works, 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 grace. Oh, yes. What a, what a difference that made. The rites, circumcision, circumcision, Lord's table. I mean, there's a change, and it's always progressing to the right. I told you recently about a man who's in a hospital. I told you about his reading program. And if you will have thought through, the New Testament epistles get read several times more than those Old Testament books. Because there's fewer of them. 80% of your Bible is the Old Testament. 20% (laughs) is the New. But in the New, we have all the good stuff. The Old's just leading to it. And it's the New that helps us interpret the Old. We want our emphasis on the new. You want to understand all that furniture and stuff in the Old Testament? All you need is the first 10 verses of Hebrews 9, and it's all over. Because there's something in heaven far better than what was back there. Lots of things to learn right here that we covered in the first service in verses 12 through 15. But the body of truth that Jesus knew they needed to learn, he wouldn't teach them, the Spirit would teach them. He had received it from the Father, He gave it to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit taught it to them. Those four verses are teaching that simple point. You need a lot more knowledge, men, but the Holy Spirit's going to give it to you. God's in the matter. I'm in the matter. The Holy Spirit's in the matter. You're going to be led into all truth. You're even going to be given prophecies to write down. And they did. And they did. Okay, let's come to John chapter 16 and verse 16 for the next lesson his resurrection would comfort them if you have read these verses and thought about them carefully the second word of my title for this section has already given away where we're going has already given away how we differ from most men in trying to understand these verses i read to you i'm going to read a section and then i'll deal with it rather quickly verse 16 this is jesus It should be in the red writing in your Bible. They're on the road under a full moon going back to Bethany. Here we go. A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, 
a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, A little while, and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said therefore, What is this that he saith? A little while. We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said, A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again, A little while, and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you, That ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Amen, amen and amen. Okay, we've got to rightly divide again. Isn't that a pitiful shame? Never forget that some of the things we do in explaining the scriptures look laborious, look like we have complicated the Bible. No, no, no. We're simplifying it to stay away from heresy by rightly dividing things and pulling them apart. The apostolic rule for Bible study for ministers is 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God. So there's, a, there's ministers that don't study and they're not approved by God. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, because he ends up with truth, rightly dividing the word of truth. Who inspired the word of truth? The spirit of truth. And the spirit of truth inspired this rule, rightly dividing. Sometimes things sound like this, and they sound like this. And we've got to decide that though they sound like this, and they sound like this, we're going to go here. We're going to take this because it explains and answers all the verses rather than just a few that sound like that. And so there are divisions to be made over and over and over again. Now let me chase this short little bird and hope that I have one of my 10 gauges with me. This verse, let me see if I can find it. It just dropped into my... Surely in vain... The net is spread in the sight of any bird. What book of the Bible am I reading that from? The book of Proverbs, chapter 1. Surely in vain, the net is spread in the sight of any bird. I'm going to a proverb because Jesus is about to tell us he's been using Proverbs. Now, does there need to be a division made in this little jewel? Surely in vain, the net is spread in the sight of any bird. Is it vanity to the fowler who is spreading the net that if a bird sees him spread a net, that bird's not going to go near his bait. Or, is the net spread in the sight of a bird in vain for the bird, because the bird's too stupid to figure out that the man's laying a net for it, and when he puts out the bait, forgets the net, goes for the bait, and is caught by the net? Yes. Oh, 
You're all wise. You're as wise as Solomon. That's a proverb. And it is not the easiest proverb in the book of Proverbs. Because if you're honest, you want to know whose vanity is it? The bird's vanity or the fowler's vanity? A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. Is that his ascension, and they would no longer see him, but he would come back in his second coming, and they would see him? That's what most believe. Absolutely. Most believe. Contradicts everything in the context. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. There's only 30 arguments I have as to how ridiculous it is. I did have fun. I love the word of God. And I love him when he uses Proverbs. It was vain for the stupid bird. Don't we refer to bird brains? Bird brains being of ineffect and of, there, aren't such, there isn't such a thing, really. Because they can't figure out that there's a net about to catch them, even though it was spread in their sight. And the, the rule there in Proverbs chapter 1 is for foolish young men. Though they see other young men get caught by the police, get in trouble, spend time in the detention center, have a criminal record, get killed, die, they go ahead and do the same things. Right. That's what the lesson's there for. Now we've got this lesson. And it's exciting. I want to make it simple and easy. I want to go on and get to the next lesson as well. And we will finish in a good time today by the grace of God. Uh, A little while and ye shall not see me. Many are confused. We don't need to be confused. We believe this lesson is a warning of his death. He's going to be gone three days and three nights in the ground when they would not see him. And he's going to come out and they are going to rejoice at his resurrection when they shall see him again for 40 days. He did not tell them to mope at his ascension and wait 2,000 years to be happy at his return. I know, I know what you're saying. Nobody would believe that. Most of them believe that. Because they cannot deal with Proverbs. What does the Bible say a proverb is? A dark saying. And so with the nature of Proverbs, men get confused with them. And brethren, no! No! They were sorrowful because they were already sorrowful that he was going to die because he had told them, I'm going to be betrayed tonight into the hands of the Gentiles. He had already told them that. And so they were already sorrowful. Didn't we already read that in verse 22? And ye now therefore have sorrow, not at his ascension in 50 days, 43 days, but right then. But that's, let's just think about this. We want to rightly divide the word of truth. It's the careful labor of the workman to look at all the factors and make real distinctions, even though the terminology could go either way. In the verse itself, a little while and ye shall not see me, and again a little while and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father, that in itself doesn't tell us. We could run the verse either way, but there's too many other verses around it that condemn the false interpretation. There are reasons we should assign this lesson to his impending death and resurrection. A little while might fit his ascension because it was 43 days later. A second little while does not really fit his return since it's still 2,000 years late to give them any joy. So the poor men had to spend their entire ministries lamenting in sorrow. No. No. Not the apostles I know about in the New Testament. 
They could sing in dungeons with their backs ripped open by a Roman scourge and stripped naked in the city of Philippi. His lesson was to the 11 apostles, and it is our error when we take something that's to the apostles and try to make it ours, that is the first step toward heresy. And so when you want these words to fit your little life is when you make this his ascension and he's in heaven. We can't see him, but he's coming back. Then we'll see him. It's because you want those verses to apply to you when those verses were for the apostles. Do you understand? That difference is huge. By seeking to adapt these words to all Christians, wrong divisions are made. For any sorrow by his death or joy by his resurrection does not fit your little life. And I'm so sorry. But it doesn't fit my little life either. And I'm not sorry. Because I want the truth of these words, not what might make me feel good. It really wouldn't make me feel good anyway that I'm supposed to live the Christian life lamenting and sorrowful. We're supposed to be living it full of joy and we're commanded to be joyful because he's sitting as victor and triumphant at the right hand of God. Amen. The ascension return sense. Do you mind if I call it that? The ascension return sense. When I ascend, you won't see me. You'll be sad. When I return in the second coming, 2,000 years later, you'll see me again. You'll be happy. Let's call it the ascension return sense of these words. It has apostles weeping and lamenting his ascension. There was no weeping and lamenting at his ascension. His ascension was glorious. His ascension was fantastic. Whether it's in Acts 1 or uh, Revelation 5, when he was received up into heaven. The ascension return sense has apostles moping for 2,000 years in heaven, waiting for joy. Because it doesn't say anything about them going to him, does it? It says about them coming to them, him coming to them. Are you with me? They're going to be moping in heaven because it's in front of the second coming. It's apostles weeping and lamenting for Jesus' coronation. That's ridiculous. It's apostles weeping and lamenting in spite of Pentecost. I thought they got the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. What are they lamenting and sorrowful for? The ascension return sense, the world celebrated for Jesus ascending to heaven. I didn't know that. Did you know that? That the world celebrated Jesus' ascension? Because it says the world, it says it there in verse 20. Ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. So whatever the event is, while the apostles are lamenting, the world's rejoicing. The ascension return sense, apostles hating his ascension, but loving his return. Because it just grieved them to have him ascend into heaven. But that's not what we read in the Bible. And I'm not going to bore you. I have 30. I gave you six or seven. It's, It's wonderful to look at the word of God, trust the words of God, trust the context. Remember, I'm Charlton Heston to you. Anybody remember why I said that? I'm a slave to context. Remember the slides I threw up on a Wednesday night where Charlton Heston is chained in a slave ship and he's rowing with all his might? Because if you don't row with all your might, you're probably going to be sunk and you're chained to the boat that's going down. I'm slave to context. That's how we interpret the Bible. Because if I look at 16, I look up, if I go to a dictionary 
and look up every word. I want to make sure I understand the word little. So I look up little. Then I look up little again. And I look up while. And I look up while again. And I look up see me. And I look up see me. And I think see me, feel me from the who from the 1970s. No, it's all ridiculous is what I'm trying to say. I need context for these words. If you hear me say I beat my wife last night, please find out what I said around that lest you call someone in authority to have her taken away from me or me taken away from her. This is a little while. How long would it be? He's going to be taken away from them in just hours. He's going to die the next day and be buried and be in the ground three days and three nights. And they would be beside themselves thinking their Lord and Master had been crucified on the cross when they thought he was the son of David that was going to ride triumphantly into Jerusalem and restore Israel to preeminence in the earth. They would be lamenting and sorrowful, not fully appreciating it, and that's part of the reason why he spoke to them in Proverbs. They did not fully understand his death. He went to death alone without any human assistance or befriending or comfort or help. Do you know that right now he could have stopped them and told them very plainly, I am about to be arrested. It is this many people coming. Judas Iscariot will be with them. They're going to take me to Caiaphas' house, then the house of Annas, then to Herod, then Pilate's going to judge. I'm going to be crucified in a cross with two thieves, one on each side. Do you know that he could have told them? He did not do anything like that. He left them because they left and they left him so that he did it alone for you and me. That should help you love your Savior just a little bit more. I don't know if telling them would have helped anyway. The way that those men were, he could could feed 5,000 with loaves and fishes and have 12 baskets full left over. And a week later, when there were 4,000 to be fed, they would wonder where he's going to do it, how he's going to do it. A little while, and ye shall not see me, because I'll be in the ground. And again, a little while... 72 hours later, three days and three nights, ye shall see me because I go to the Father. Men, this is my next lesson. It is my time to return to the Father. Before I return to the Father, I have what my whole life has been pointed toward, and that is to die, be buried, and to rise again. Before I ascend to my Father, I have my great work to do. You know, you can take the words, because I go to the Father, let's apply them to the last clause. A little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Well, how are they going to see him because he went to the Father? I'm telling you the proper sense of these words. Men, it is about time for me to go to the Father. In six weeks, I'm going to be gone. I'm going to ascend into heaven and be with the Father. I came from him. I will return to him. He's taught them this. Before I go, what my whole life is pointed toward is to be killed, buried, and to rise again. He had taught them that. When I'm killed and buried, you will not see me, and you will lament, and the world is going to celebrate because they've killed the one that exposed their sins. But I will rise from the grave, and I will see you again, and you will be happy, and no one will take your joy away. No man is going to take your joy because you're going to have a victorious Savior and know that I can conquer all the Jews and that I can conquer death and that I can conquer sin and that I can conquer the devil. No no man will take 
your joy from you. Now, if it's the ascension return idea, what men are going to be trying to take our joy away when the Lord returns? I know what you're thinking. I can't even think of such a stupid thought. Well, can you think of anything stupider than the eternal procession of the Spirit? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. We have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, Greenvillians, Americans, and anybody that assembles in this church, that we are all under sin. Amen. But God has been merciful to us, and we love the truth that he's shown us. Right. Oh. How long does a woman have to wait to have joy to cover childbirth? 2,000 years or a few hours or days? Hello? Which world rejoiced at his death? Jewish. What world rejoiced at his ascension? None. They didn't know that he ascended. As far as they knew what had happened, he was in the ground. They rejoiced at his death. The apostles had great joy when Jesus rose again. You're in John. Look at just over a couple of chapters to John chapter 20. Lord, open up your word to us by your Holy Spirit. I'm dumber than a dumb fisherman, but I thank you for your precious word. John 20 and verse 20. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Now that's pretty simple. When they saw the Lord, they were glad. And there's other verses that we could go to. It, it says in one place in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 8, they didn't believe for joy. The joy was so great. If this is true, it's too good to be true about Jesus' resurrection. Right. But, but remember, the ascension return school of thought would tell us that they're lamenting. Oh, no, no, no. And they were filled with joy. And then they were filled with joy of the Holy Ghost the day of Pentecost. And they were joyful apostles. They commanded joy. They expected joy. They practiced joy. Christians of that era practiced joy. The Christian life is to be joyful. The apostles commanded joy. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now the God of all peace grant you to be filled with all joy and peace in believing that she may abound in hope. And we could go, I just gave you a few more. I still haven't hit double digits. But there's at least 30 arguments. And if you were to read the thing, you'd maybe find more. Verse 16 is saying, Men, I have to return to the Father as I have been telling you. It's expedient for you that I go away because the Holy Spirit's going to come. But before I get to return to the Father, what my whole life has been pointing toward is I have to die, be buried, and rise again. And so you're not going to see me for a little while. You know, this daily companionship that we've had, day, night, day, night, together, everywhere we went, it was the 13 of us, then it was the 12 of us, we eat supper together, we stay there and continue talking, we walk to Bethany together, we're together right now, it's going to be interrupted. I'm going to be gone for a little while. You're going to lament and be sorrowful while I'm in the grave, but I'm going to rise from the dead and you'll see me again, and I'll show myself, I'll show myself alive to you 
for 40 days and you will rejoice. Then I'll go to heaven. The world's going to celebrate when you can't see me. But when I see you again, all your sorrow will disappear. Like a woman when she gives birth, all the travail that she went through in the child labor disappears because a child is born into the world and the child is healthy and alive. I'm going to be healthy and alive and you're going to see me again and you're going to rejoice and all your sorrow will disappear. Well, these poor apostles, they had read too many commentaries or too many fishing magazines because they're messed up. Jesus is speaking in Proverbs, so let's be kind to them. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? Do not forget they did not understand that Jesus was going to die like a criminal on a cross, be buried, and rise from the dead. They were waiting for Jesus to take the city of Jerusalem. Return Israel to its preeminence. Give Israel the kingdom. They just didn't understand. And Jesus didn't teach them yet. But they sure would understand shortly. On the day of Pentecost, one hour into it, Peter understood it all perfectly. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith? A little while. We cannot tell what he saith. They had no clue what Jesus was talking about. That's all you need to know about those two verses, except I want to point out one thing. They said, therefore, in verse 18, what is this that he saith? They're not talking to him. They're talking to each other. Or they wouldn't have used him in the third person. Okay? Important. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. They don't know, they're not, they don't know how to ask it yet. This is important. I'm telling you. It's important if you want to understand this chapter. They wanted to ask. They didn't ask. They just talked among themselves. That's why all the repetition here, they're just, what is this about? Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him. Had they asked him? No, they were desirous to ask him. You're going to need this. Okay, I hope I warned you. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him and said unto him, and said unto them, excuse me, and said unto them, do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while and ye shall not see me and again a little while and ye shall see me? Now, do you find this a little amusing? Does verse 17 go through it all? Does verse 16 say it all once? Does verse 17 go through it all again? Does verse 18 go through some of it again? Does Jesus go through it again, fourth time, in verse 19? Does he tell them what they're thinking about? Does he tell them what they're asking each other about? Does he know what they want to ask him? Important. Do you ever talk about things and needs that you have in your life before you even get to prayer? He knows what you have need of before you ever ask him. It's going to come back to us. Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him. Right there, that's a lesson for us. And we should rejoice in that, that Jesus knows before we ask. Jesus knows before we ask. God our Father knows 
before we ask. His knowledge of the apostles' questions and secret discussion proved his omniscience. We'll come back to that. It may not be today because it's in verse 30. They'll refer back to this later in the chapter as a convincing display. Let's run ahead just so that I can show you so that I can forget about hinting. Verse 30. This is the apostles. Is it in the black writing in your Bible? Now we are sure, John 16, 30. Now we are sure that thou knowest all things and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Jesus answered them, do ye now believe? Because he knew what they were talking about that they hadn't asked him. And so there in verse 19, Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves? And he goes through a little while. You'll not see me a little while, and you will see me again. He explains it. That's all over with. He showed his omniscience. He showed his care about them. He showed his interest in their questions, because they were going to have questions. But the Holy Spirit was going to answer all their questions, and they knew that Jesus would take care of them. Jesus by the Father, Jesus by the Spirit, was going to take care of them when they had questions, because he knew their questions before they asked them. And no man had to ask, because Jesus already knew. And I thank the Lord for that. He has taken care of me all my life, undeservedly so. But he's known what I've needed, without me even knowing what I needed myself. And you all should be able to admit that about your own life. That he knows what we have need of before we ask. He knows what we have need of before we know that we should ask. He knows what we have need of before we know what we should ask for. Because we don't know how to ask for what we should And so he does it all for us. And I thank the Lord for a Savior like that. Now that's a pastor you can trust. Okay? That's a pastor you can put your trust in him. He's going to see you through this life, through death, and into eternal life. Verse 20, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, When did that happen? At the death of Jesus Christ and his burial. The apostles were sorrowful. The women were sorrowful. They couldn't believe what had happened. They were for fear of the Jews in an upper room, unsure of their whole religion, unsure of their commitment to Christ. And the world celebrated. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us much about the world. After crucify him, crucify him, and Jesus dying and being put in the tomb and money being paid to the guards to say that his disciples came and stole him away. The Bible doesn't say anything, but is it safe to possibly, with a wild guess, wonder if maybe those rabid Jews celebrated a little bit that night? You know they did. The book of Revelation is going to tell us that when two witnesses die, the world's going to celebrate their death because those two witnesses were witnesses of God against them. If you want to know what the two witnesses are in Revelation chapter 14, it very well could be, and it very well might not be, the church and the ministry. Both the church and the ministry witnessing against the church of Rome and witnessing against men. And during the dark ages, the Bible says there would be war against the church and, the, and they would prevail. And it would look like the church was dead, but it would come back to life. But while they were dead, the world celebrated their death. Now, how about the Lord Jesus? I don't want to think about Revelation. That's why I said what I said. I want to think about John 16 right here. When it tells us in verse 20, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is one of Jesus Christ's 
attention-getting devices that what he's about is to lay important truth on them, and this will help us understand verse 16. What event took place that they wept and lamented about? Was it his ascension? No. Was it Pentecost? No. Was it his return? No. What event? Was it his resurrection that they lamented about? No. It was his death and his burial. What happened to our Lord? How about the two on the road to Emmaus? Jesus jumps in alongside them and, what do you guys look so sad for? Well, him that we thought that was going to deliver Israel, he got killed and buried. Really? Terrible. Then Jesus starts, is that right? Jesus starts explaining all the scriptures to them of how he was, the Messiah was supposed to come and was supposed to die and was supposed to rise again and that it was taught in their scriptures and their hearts burned within them as he hinted and hinted and hinted. And then when he broke bread, he opened their eyes to know that it was him. And they were back to Jerusalem full of joy to tell the apostles that Jesus was risen and they had just seen him. Amen. So that, this is Jesus on the road to Bethany. Final lessons of encouragement. Men, a little while. Can you hold on for just a little while? A little while, you're not going to see me. and You're going to be sad. The world's going to celebrate, but just ignore their celebrating. And isn't that what we have to do every day of our lives? The stuff they celebrate that we're sorrowful about and the stuff that we celebrate, they can't believe. That's why we're crucified to the world and the world is crucified to us. But here in verse 20, Jesus is telling them, Men, a little while, I'm going to be gone and you won't see me. You're going to weep and lament. The world's going to rejoice. And you're going to be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy in a little while. Just for a little while, you won't see me. Then you're going to be joyful. That's his resurrection. And were they joyful? Um, Full of joy. Couldn't believe it. Wanting to tell everybody. Running around this way and that way to make sure everyone knew because they were supposed to head toward Galilee where he said he would meet them. Verse 21 is just an analogy of a woman giving childbirth. And for them to understand, men, how did you get here? A woman gave birth to you. Do you know that for a little while it wasn't very nice bringing you into the world? But then, once you were born, men, when a man-child was born in the world, your mothers got all excited about it and forgot the difficulty of childbirth. Men, do you understand my analogy? I know you haven't given birth, men, but you were birthed once, men. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. And the hour is come for me to be arrested, tried, and crucified. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born in the world. And you're going to be anguished for three days. You're going to see me crucified. You're going to see witnesses piled up against me that are lying, and you know they're lying, and you're going to see me not saying anything, going as a lamb to the slaughter. You're going to be in travail. You're going to be sorrowing. You're going to be lamenting, and you're going to be anxious for me. But then you're going to watch me die. You're going to watch me get buried. And one day is going to pass with no event. Another day is going to pass. Another day is going to pass. Then you'll see me. And your sorrow will be turned into joy. 
Verse 22, And ye now therefore have sorrow. Because I've told you that I'm going to be betrayed tonight, because Judas Iscariot has gone AWOL, because I've told you what's going to happen, but I will see you again. See, he's already being taken away from them. He's going to be arrested in just hours or minutes. Because we're not even to Gethsemane yet. Gethsemane's 18.1 when he enters the Garden of Gethsemane. But I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. When you see me resurrected, and you see me ascend into heaven, and you get the gift of the Holy Ghost, when you see the things that are the result of my death, my being gone from you, it's like a childbirth of a woman. Everything's all better because I'm back and I'm going to heaven and you're going to get the spirit and nobody's going to be able to take that joy away from you. They're not going to be able to put you in prison and take that joy away. They're not going to be able to blaspheme me and take that joy away. It doesn't matter if the whole council of the Jewish leadership is against you. You're going to be full of joy because I have risen from the dead. We, we, we understate and we undervalue the importance of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension. We put so much emphasis on his death, and I know why we do that, because the Bible puts emphasis there, but I'm telling you, when the, when the apostles went out and preached, do you know what they preached preeminently? His resurrection from the dead. Because each of them had to be a witness of his resurrection from the dead to go out and witness that. So that's lesson Uh, verses 16 through 22, he's warning them, men, I'm about to be taken from you and it's just going to be a little while. You're going to be sad. The world's going to celebrate. Just hold on. Don't worry about that world celebrating. You're going to be sorrowful. Don't worry. I'm going to come back and see you and you'll rejoice and your joy will never end. This could not be the ascension and the second return, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his resurrection. For three days, you're going to be without me. You're going to be in Jerusalem. Because outside the city of Jerusalem is where he was crucified. You're going to be scared of the Jews. The Bible tells us they were. You're going to wonder what's going on. You're going to lament. You're going to be sorrowful. You're going to be in anguish. But I'm going to turn it all into joy. Did Peter sound pretty happy to you on the day of Pentecost? Morning time? Was he happy in the morning? Was he happy in the afternoon? When he found the lame man at at the gate beautiful of the temple... Was he sad? Was he lamenting? Brother, you think you're the only one in trouble? You've never walked in 38 years? You know, or you think you're the only one suffering? What about us? No way. He said, silver and gold have I none. But what I have give I thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. He was full of joy. When they got beat, didn't I just open this service with the last three verses of Acts chapter 5? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to be beaten for the Lord Jesus Christ because no one could take their joy away. We're going to beat that joy out of you. They couldn't beat that joy out of the apostles. They couldn't beat it out of the apostle Paul because they had a risen Savior that they were going to. They couldn't beat it out of Stephen. Stephen's standing there. They're plugging up their ears and running on him. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God, full of joy because he was a resurrected, risen, reigning Savior, later to return. He wasn't going to return in their lifetimes, but they were happy men during their lifetimes. They had joyful ministries. We want to have a joyful ministry and a joyful life as a Christian 
because of the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23 through 27. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. But the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. And I'm going to stop right there to make it simpler for us and to finish in good time. This is the next lesson. This is the next lesson, and it is power in prayer because of the Lord Jesus as mediator. This is, this is beautiful about prayer. Now, we have seen truth in verses 12 through 15, revealed by the Holy Spirit in the apostles' epistles, and we should embrace the epistles. That's what we can take from it in verses 12 through 15. Verses 16 through 22 is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a glorious victory over death. It is a glorious victory over the world. It is a glorious victory over its criminal system. It's a glorious victory over the grave, hell, sin, and the devil. It's glorious. And that joy cannot be taken away if we remind each other that Jesus has destroyed death and has risen from the dead. We do it every time there's a baptism. That's why our baptism is so crucial to be done the right way. We bury and we raise someone because Jesus was buried and rose again. And we should live in that newness of life and with that excitement. Well, what lesson can we get right now? The power of prayer in Jesus' name. No one in the history of the world had ever prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 23. And in that day, what day? The coming New Testament era of the gospel. After my resurrection, when you're full of joy and no one can take it away. After my ascension, after the day of Pentecost, when you're full of the Holy Ghost. Did you read Acts 4 last night like I asked you to? I read it. Acts 4. How did they pray? Did they insert in that short prayer two times in the body of the prayer that we are praying in the name of thy holy child, Jesus? Did they do that? Do you understand why? Because of this lesson right here. What happened when they finished that short prayer? The place was shaken where they were assembled. Why? Because Almighty God, Jehovah the Father, had had them beg Him for help in the name of His holy Child, Jesus. The place was shaken. We don't want the place to shake. We just want us to shake. And I don't mean as Quakers. I mean to shake with joy of the Holy Ghost in the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 23, in that day, that day when you have joy and no man can take your joy from you, when you are fully convinced that I'm alive from the dead, that I have ascended up into heaven, and you're full of the Holy Ghost, the New Testament era, when you are my apostles doing your work, in that day ye shall ask me nothing. You will stop asking me 
like you wanted to ask me, what did you mean by a little while and we'll not see you and a little while we will see you? What did you mean by you won't be asking me anything anymore? Okay? They're going to stop at. They're going to have answers inside by the Holy Ghost and they're being taught how to pray. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father, that is the difference. In that day ye shall ask me nothing. By way of emphasis, all prayers changed right here. Over the next 50 days, prayers changed from being addressed personally and casually to Jesus or prayers to Jehovah without an appeal to any meaningful name or any meaningful authority with Jehovah. It was animal sacrifices. You know, when they wanted to get with God in the past, you'd kill something and burn it on an altar and then ask God. But no longer. Jesus is going into heaven as our mediator, as our intercessor. And so when he says in verse 23, in that day, ye shall ask me nothing. Everything's going to change, men. I want to tell you how. Pray the Father. The Father cares about you. Isn't he going to say that in verse 27? I'm jumping ahead. Yes, he's going to say that in verse 27. The Father loves you on his own, just pray in my name. It'll get him excited to do something for me. He wants to be glorified in me. This is how it develops. Look at chapter 14. This is a change in prayer. Did you know that all the baptisms up to Pentecost were different than the baptism on Pentecost? Nobody was ever baptized in the Trinitarian formula before Pentecost. They were all baptized in the baptism of repentance of John the Baptist. And that was good enough as long as you knew that John the Baptist was talking about someone coming who was greater than he. The Trinitarian formula was given in the last minute before Jesus ascended up into heaven one week before Pentecost. Things were changing. Why? Because Jesus was no longer the meek and mild lamb on earth. He was going to be crucified, buried, rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, be crowned with glory and honor, and sit down at God's right hand and to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest name in the world. There is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Did you read that in Acts chapter 4 last night? Therefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. It is not the name of Muhammad, and it is not the name of Joseph Smith or Buddha or Allah or anyone else. It is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we pray to Jehovah, the only true and living God, we invoke the name of his son. In John 14, remember this is all within a couple of hours, upper room and on the road to Bethany. All in the same time he had taught them this. Watch. John 14, 13. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The effort is continually to unite the Trinity together. They had the whole Godhead on their side when they were left alone and had to stand before 250 of the most illustrious men of the Jewish nation and defend their religion. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. This is a few minutes before 16. Okay, do you have that? I'll do it. Ask in my name, I'll do it. Okay, come over to chapter 15. Chapter 15 and verse 16. The last half of the verse, because it's the last half that I want, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. 
John 16 and verse 23. Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. You men have squandered your opportunity in prayer. Because he hadn't taught them yet. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That was only good for a time, for a short time because it didn't end the right way. It didn't have in the name of thy holy child Jesus in the middle of it. Which adds to those prayers. Because they didn't pray that way yet. They didn't baptize that way yet. Do you understand me? They didn't baptize that way yet. They baptized the baptism of repentance. They didn't pray that way yet in Jesus' name. And so Jesus is telling them, Hitherto, verse 24, have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. Do you want to be excited about having God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ myself, I'll do it for you, chapter 14, and God the Holy Spirit, teaching you and leading you into all truth? Do you want to have the whole Trinity at your disposal? Drop my name. And so the list that I sent out to you that had confidence in prayer, that Brother Adam increased from 8 to 9 over the last two weeks, I've increased from 9 to Tevin. Tevin. Maybe the Lord's telling me that 11's coming soon. I've increased it to 10 because of this name-dropping rule here. This name-dropping rule is powerful. So verse 23, in that day, when you have joy, knowing that I'm alive with no doubts and are empowered with the Holy Ghost to fulfill your ministries and joy that no man can take from you, in that day, the New Testament era, ye shall ask me nothing. The, this question that you had about my words, a little while, you won't see me, a little while, you will see me, you wanted to ask me, you can just go right straight to the Father in Jesus' name. And isn't that what the apostles taught us in detail? That the veil of the temple was rent open? That we can go straight into the presence of God? That there we have an intercessor? We can boldly go into the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 10. You just know it too well. And Jesus is using Proverbs and they didn't understand it yet. But he's telling them, we can look back at these verses now and say they're wonderful. Look what he says. In that day ye shall ask me nothing. As soon as you realize the full transition here of the next 50 days, you will not ask me any questions. Verily, verily, I say unto you, our Lord's attention-getting device, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. You haven't asked the Father in my name for anything. Ask, try it, I dare you. Ask and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. Are you afraid of negative things happening to you men? Are you afraid of what's going to happen? Prayer has also changed. This is a separate lesson. Prayer's changed. If you'll ask the Father in my name, he'll do it for you. He's taught him three times. Chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16. Do you think we ought to use the name of Jesus when we pray? I love the prayer in Acts 4. In the name of thy holy child Jesus. Twice in the body of the prayer. Don't get too accustomed to having to just tack it on at the end like a PS. Why not start out with it? You want us to get his attention right off the bat? 
Start out with it. In the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. That your joy may be full. Men, whatever happens, all you have to do is ask the Father in my name. I'll do it, chapter 14. The Father will do it, chapter 15. The Father will do it, chapter 16. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. And those times did come. After his resurrection, he was plainer, but were not shown much. And after Pentecost, he was very plain by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, at that day, in that New Testament era, ye shall ask in my name. You will learn this lesson about prayer. At that day, ye shall ask in my name. Now, here's, a, here's another interesting little clause. And I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. Wait a minute. But I thought that Jesus Christ is the, our intercessor, is our mediator, and he does pray for us. Why does he say, and I say not unto you, I'm just not going to say it right now because I've taught it to you before and it's not what's important. What is important is at that day, ye shall ask the father in my name. And I'm not going to say to you right now that I'm going to pray for you because prayer to the father in my name is enough. He will pray for them. The rest of the New Testament does teach us that, but he's not going to bring it up right now. You say, is, that, is, is his point really that simple, that he's simply not going to mention it right now, that he'll pray for them? His point is actually that simple, to redirect their attention to God Almighty, their Father in heaven. At that day, ye shall ask in my name. Ask who? In his name. Ask the Father in my name. And I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, because he'd already said it earlier, and the epistles are going to tell us about it. And here's the explanation. He's redirecting them to verse 27. For the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. By you using my name in prayer, you are telling God that you believe that I came from him and that you love me. And that's enough. The Father is going to bury you with answers to your prayers that your joy may be full. Amen. I met some Jesus freaks when I was a young boy. If you listen to charismatics very much, and them throwing the name of Jesus around flippantly. You almost come to dislike the name because they so abuse it. They don't know the Jesus, nor the spirit, nor the gospel of the apostles. The apostles said there was another spirit, another Jesus, and another gospel. And in my childhood, teenage years, 20s, part of my... I was uncomfortable with the name of Jesus because I heard abuse so much. Not by my father. Never. But I'm telling you, since hearing the gospel and studying the gospel and being 61 years old now, I love these verses right here. Amen. I love Acts 4 where they use two times in the name of thy holy child Jesus. 
I want to encourage you to pray that way. Jesus was encouraging them. Men, I'm just about to leave your company. You're going you're gonna to have needs. You're never, don't ask me anymore. Ask the Father. Drop my name. He'll know that you love me by talking to Jehovah about Jesus. He'll know that you love me. He'll know that you believe that I came from him. He will answer your prayer requests, and I'll answer your prayer requests. And I don't need to remind you that I'll be praying along with you, and I'll be praying for you in heaven, because I don't need to mention that. I've already taught you that before. And since my main point is for you to appreciate the Father's interest in your prayers by just using my name, I'll not mention the fact that I'll be praying for you as well. But what does that really say to you in full? Wow! Is what it says. If I pray in Jesus' name, the Father hears me, the Father answers me, Jesus will do it for me, the Father knows I love His Son Jesus, and the Father knows that I believe that He came from God, and Jesus is praying for me. Do you understand that? Because he had taught them that. And the New Testament epistles go on to say that Jesus is our intercessor for us. That he, he's, he is touched with all the feelings of our infirmities, Hebrews chapter 4. And so that is in addition to this. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.